the show everybody welcome to the show got more stories than I know what to do with here today it is snowing in a lot of the country today which is kind of crazy for late April that is really wacky if you ask me um so uh we did the little breaking news segment about the Derek Chauvin trial found guilty on all counts um we have Nancy Pelosi Weighing in on the result, and she shoves her foot directly in her mouth. Um, ben Shapiro enters the dumbest tweet of all time club. I got some Trump. He did an interview with Sean Hannity. I got more desperate attacks on Andrew Yang, this time from the pricks over at MSNBC's Morning Joe. So uh, there is a lot of stuff to get to today. I'll tell you about Biden's new bill. I'll sprinkle in some Dave Rubin and some Milo Yiannopoulos. So uh, let's get started. There's a lot of stuff to get to. Yesterday we got the result of the Derek Chauvin trial. He was found guilty on all counts. I believe it was murder in the third degree, murder in the second degree, and maybe manslaughter in the first, something along those lines. Um, Keith Ellison did a fantastic job in this case. He was the prosecutor. And it is very, very, very rare that cops get found guilty. So this really is a testament to the great work done by Keith Ellison. It's also a testament to the bystander who recorded the video. If we didn't have that video, I don't think anything would have happened in this case. I don't think Derek Chauvin would be behind bars. I really don't, you know, um, because the initial press releases on the incident were so innocuous and they took away all agency from the officer and they made it sound like it was a whoopsie, somebody died, as opposed to like, you know, what it was, which was a killing. 
So um, this is the best result we could have hoped for, given the tragic situation. Now, Nancy Pelosi decided to give a speech on this. I believe Biden did as well. Um, And Pelosi went viral for all the wrong reasons. Look at what she said. Thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life for justice, for being there to call out to your mom. How, How heartbreaking was that? Call out for your mom. I can't breathe. But because of you and because of thousands, millions of people around the world who came out for justice, your name will always be synonymous with justice. Come on, son. Come on, son. How do you not know you can't say that? (laughs) How do you not know you can't say that? I don't understand. Like, don't get it twisted. Do I think her intentions are pure? Like, she's trying to give this high-minded speech with soaring rhetoric about how much she's on the side of justice and how bad the police officer was. Yeah, that's what she's trying to do. But she's so out of touch and so disconnected that she thought that line up and said it, and it didn't occur to her at any point, maybe I shouldn't say this. Maybe this makes no sense. Maybe this is actually a terrible thing to say. You know, I think potentially she wrote a speech and potentially she ran that by her staff and her staff must be so packed full of yes men and yes women that they hear that and they're like, nailed it. I think you should say exactly that. And that's astonishing to me. It's astonishing to me. And this is a thing that happens all the time with powerful people. They surround themselves with yes men and yes women. And they don't understand the real value of having a dissenting opinion in the room. And uh, so then you get this. You get Nancy Pelosi thanking George Floyd for sacrificing his life for justice. He didn't sacrifice his life. His life was taken from him. He was murdered. And uh, Rania Kolick made a great point about this. He wasn't sacrificed for justice. His life being taken away was like peak injustice. Go talk to, if we could talk to George Floyd pretty sure George Floyd would say, I should be alive today, and no, I wouldn't sacrifice my life for that. Not at all. And, I mean, now I'm seeing articles that say Democrats and Republicans behind the scenes are breathing a sigh of relief at the verdict, because now they say, I'm not kidding about this, oh, it takes the pressure off of us having to do criminal justice reform. So, in other words, they're going to relax and allow injustice to perpetuate because we got one case right. I, you know, I said this yesterday in my breaking news segment on this, but I can only remember one other case where the cop was found guilty. And it was the most clear thing I've ever seen in my entire life. I believe the person who was killed is Walter Scott. He basically turned around and ran away from the officer. The officer slowly but surely pulled out the gun, set up, and murdered him by shooting him in the back as he was running away. That officer was found guilty. Outside of that, I I don't remember any of them being found guilty, even in incredibly egregious cases like Eric Garner, for example. So, like, what, 2% of the time we get 
the proper result, and they're like, yes, he sacrifices life for the cause of justice. Everything is good now. Everybody go home. No, nothing to see here anymore. We're all done. We're all set. As if there's not way more to do with criminal justice reform. You know, I mean, this isn't even criminal justice reform. This is just one case of the justice system having the better result. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's still what you want to do. There's a number of things you want to do, and we can't go through them all in this segment because time constraints, but you want to do serious, serious systemic police reform. It might be time to have the conversation about maybe officers not having firearms on them. You know, maybe they just have it in their vehicle and they only take it out when there's a report of an active shooter. Maybe they should have non-lethal, only non-lethal stuff on them. Um, maybe you should have a situation where, this isn't a maybe, this is a definitely. And the drug war, which is basically the thing that allows the police to act as an occupying army in many urban neighborhoods. You know, it allows them, it gives them the ability to over-police to shake people down. Nobody should be in jail for nonviolent drug offenses. So you should legalize tax and regulate drugs. You should free every single nonviolent drug offender, by the way. Um, you need independent prosecutors, civilian review boards, um, serious limits on the military-grade equipment going to police officers. I mean, you really got to start from the ground up type stuff, you know? And instead, they view this as like, oh, thankfully now we don't have to do that because it was the better result in a situation that should have never even happened in the first place. George Floyd should be alive. But Nancy Pelosi's takeaway is, thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life for justice, for, for calling out for your mom. Oh, God. Nancy. Nancy. But, you know, nobody should be surprised, because this is the, this is the Democratic Party now. They'll do the kente cloth kneeling, all the symbolism in the world, They'll try to be woke and down for the struggle, but they're massively out of touch, number one. And number two, they do that to try to distract you from the fact that on actual policy, they're incredibly corrupt, incredibly corporatist, not for any sort of fundamental systemic change when it comes to pretty much anything, but definitely not for foreign policy, definitely not for economic policy, definitely not domestic policy or even social policy, you know? So this is what you get. You get, like, virtue-signaling speeches that go awry instantly because they don't even know, know how to sound, you know, supportive and empathetic in a moment like this. If you don't know how to sound supportive and empathetic in a moment like this, oh, sweet Jesus, you're breaking the world record for being out of touch. Okay. Next. So we had the Derek Chauvin trial. Uh, the result came in guilty on all counts. Um, you know, it's the best possible outcome given the horrendous situation. But a lot of people now are telling on themselves. 
Because I have to tell you, everybody who even fancies themselves a conservative or a Republican, if they're anywhere remotely connected to reality, they're all saying that was the right decision. You know, and I've seen a number of them, to be fair. But there are a lot of people who are telling on themselves who are not moderate conservatives or moderate Republicans. They are terrible, and they're far right. And they're not happy with the verdict, even though we've all seen the video. It appears pretty clear to me, you know. Um, it's hard to imagine anybody can look at that and be like, yeah, not guilty. Didn't do anything wrong. Okay, well... Um, we now have a conservative commentator entering the dumb tweet hall of fame for the worst possible reaction, the dumbest possible reaction to the result. Ben Shapiro responds to Caleb Howe. Caleb Howe says, CNN's Don Lemon, justice has been served. Ben says, and we all know he would never have said, have said this had the reverse verdict been reached. carry the six. That's right. Because if the reverse verdict was reached, a murderer would be walking free. Logic boy forgot the logic. (laughs) What are you doing? What are you saying? How do you tweet that? How do you type it out? Give it a read over and say, yep, nailed it. That's one of the most embarrassing tweets I've ever read in my life. And if you read the responses, he's getting absolutely, positively eviscerated. It's amazing when you read the responses. The point he's attempting to make is like, whatever result the justice system comes to, that is by definition justice being served. That's the argument he's trying to make. So what he's saying is, hey, if the result were to be reversed, That is still justice being served, but I bet you wouldn't look at it that way if that were the case. But, of course, what he's saying presupposes that, like, you're never allowed to disagree with the outcome of something in the justice system. Of course you're allowed to disagree with the outcome. Ben Shapiro himself has disagreed with many cases that have gone through our justice system, and he would respond the same way. He'd be like, I don't agree with that outcome, so I don't think justice was served. Ben, this isn't hard. Like, I know you're trying to do, like, the, I epically pwned the liberals, bro. I got the libtard, see? Wrecked. But, you know, your stick is getting old, and you lost a step or two, dog. You lost, like, 17 steps when I read this tweet. Yeah, it makes sense to say justice is served if the guy who is obviously guilty was found guilty, and if the guy who was obviously guilty was found not guilty... That would not be justice being served. I'm going to have an aneurysm and a stroke on air because this is the guy that the right holds up as their, like, intellectual powerhouse over here. He's not an intellectual powerhouse. He's a smarmy loser who talks really fast and tricks people into thinking he's, like, some sort of mega genius. Just because you talk fast, doesn't mean you're right. In the same way that, remember the old school Bill O'Reilly stuff? Just because you're yelling doesn't mean you're correct. But this is what they have. They have these tricks. He uses, like, the dumbest, lowest level talking points, 
and he just repeats them like a fucking chipmunk at a thousand miles an hour. And, you know, a lot of people on the far right come themselves. They think, yes! Oh, yes! This sounds smart, even though it's obviously, and even though it's banal talking points from decades ago, that he just put a slight modern twist on it and pushed out there, vomited into the, into the discourse. Ben, what are we going to do with you, man? What are we going to do with you? I should be nicer. I should be nicer. Because one of the things I pride myself on the most is deconverting a lot of the people who are even, either Crowder fans or Ben Shapiro fans or going down that alt-right pipeline or whatever the fuck. And usually what you want to do is, the strategy that works best when, when trying to do something like that is you take, you give credit words due, and then you do say, hey, here are the criticisms. But remember, I'm legit. You can believe me. I gave credit where it was due. But this is one of those segments where it's like, ain't no credit that's due, son. You're just an idiot. And maybe that turns off some of the people who are diehard Ben Shapiro folks, but what are you going to do? I got to put the truth first over any sort of strategizing about deconversion or whatever. And this is one of those cases where (laughs) nuance not necessary. You are a total jackass. Okay, next. Donald Trump came back, did an interview with Sean Hannity, who's, you know, probably his favorite host. And um, Trump was asked, what do you think your biggest accomplishment is? And his answer is the most pathetic thing I've ever heard. What are you most proud of, though? A lot of things. Uh, I'm very proud of the tax cuts. I hope they don't screw it up because the jobs... You know, we brought back a record... I think so. We brought back a record... Well, it's still not going to be as high as it was. You know, it was really 39%. Right. So it looks like it could be at 25%. I brought it down to 21. But I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of the... And and very importantly, the regulation cuts. I'm very proud of what I did for the military. I've rebuilt the military, and I've added something called Space Force. It's going to be so powerful, so important. Every single thing he cited there is objectively terrible for the country. I mean, he like, listen, I'm going to try to be nice here. He could have said something that was less dumb. He could have said, first step back. First Step Act, because we're giving a lot of people a second chance, and they deserve a second chance, and it's, you know, it helps release some nonviolent drug offenders, and, you know, that's the thing I'm most proud of. Could have said that. Could have said, hey, I killed the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a, you know, job-killing outsourcing deal. Could have said that. Uh, Didn't say any of those things. In fact, the things he cites are things that any generic Republican president over the past five decades would have done. So there's a great lesson to take away from this, which is, and this is the only place you hear this lesson, unfortunately, Trumpism is the exact same as movement conservatism. It's the exact same as Reagan republicanism. Trumpism is just standard establishment GOP politics dressed up in a slightly different package, dressed up with mean tweets and fake populism. That's Trumpism. That's all Trumpism is. And this is in his own words he's telling you what he's most proud of. I'm most proud of the tax cuts. 
you're most proud of the tax cuts, 83% of the benefits of that bill went to the top 1%. 83%. In no uncertain terms. That bill is a giant giveaway to the wealthy. It's class warfare waged by the government and the wealthy on the working class. That's what that bill is. That's what that bill is. And they literally talk about the corporate tax cuts as one of the things he's most proud of. Oh, yeah. By the way, he's not telling the truth. He says, oh, the rate was really 39, and I brought it down to 21. The rate was not 39. The rate was nominally 35. And by the way, it wasn't even really 35 because there's loopholes and deductions, and no corporations were paying that. Very few, if any, were paying that. And, but he brought it from 35 down to 21. So he's bragging about giving more money to corporations at a time when they already have more money than ever before, and regular people are getting hosed. Then he brings up deregulation. This is getting worse and worse as we go on, guys. You bring up deregulation? Okay, examples of uh, deregulation that he did. Destroyed the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which returned billions of dollars to defrauded Americans. When big financial institutions would commit fraud, they would step in, do the investigation, and return money to Americans who were defrauded. That's what, he taught. That's what he gutted. That's what he gutted. He also gutted a lot of environmental protections and clean water protections. Imagine bragging about that. How could you possibly brag about that? Destroyed whatever remnants were there of Wall Street regulation. This is the stuff that he did. And this is the stuff he says he's most proud of. Most proud of. Another thing he did, dropped all the cases into predatory payday lenders. So there were Obama-era regulations that were kicking in, and there were some lawsuits going on against the predatory payday lenders because they're basically loan sharks. He dropped all the cases and went back to deregulating the industry so they get away with whatever they want. And by the way, just so you know, probably the reason why he did that is that the predatory payday loan industry donated about a million dollars to his inauguration in 2016. So it's I scratch your back, you scratch mine. That's as corrupt as it gets. That is the swamp that he said he was going to drain. He is the swamp he said he was going to drain. That's the sort of deregulation he was doing. And this is, he's bragging about that. And then finally he says, oh, we rebuilt the, rebuilt the military. Our military under Obama was bigger than any military on planet Earth. And it was bigger than about 10 of the next biggest countries combined. And most of them are our allies. So you can't, we rebuilt the military from what? The gargantuan, bloated, preposterous, gigantic position it was in? You don't need to rebuild it. There's no rebuilding happening. It's already way too big. Oh, we rebuilt it. That, what that means is I allowed the Pentagon and I allowed the military to loot the Treasury. That's what that means. So all the money that we should be you know, using for social programs and all the money we should be using for infrastructure, for example... I let the military have it. That's what that means. That's what that means. I, I can't, it's amazing to me that he brags about it. We have 800 military bases around the world, and he's bragging about, I rebuilt the military. It's like one of your biggest failures that you continued imperialism and neoconservatism as the operating ideology. And then he brings up Space Force. I mean, stop and think about this. Tell me how broken a society is when we don't even have universal health care in the middle of a pandemic, when every other developed nation does have universal health care, and instead of doing universal health care in the middle of a pandemic, we did Space Force. We need a branch of the military in space before we need to make sure our fellow Americans don't die 
or don't go bankrupt from medical bills. Tens of millions of Americans, no health insurance. By the way, that's another thing. About 9 million people lost their health insurance as Trump was president. How's that for a legacy? Reduce the number of people who had health insurance. At least Obama expanded it, even though it was a shitty corporate bill. At least it was expanded. Reduced it. We don't have universal health care. We don't have an upgraded infrastructure. We don't have free college. We have $1.6 trillion in student loan debt. And he's bragging about fucking Space Force. Space Force. So that's his list. Trump's list of his biggest accomplishments, the things he's most proud of, tax cuts that overwhelmingly went to the rich, reducing corporate taxes from 35% to 21%, regulation cuts, which screw average Americans, spending a preposterous amount of money on the military as the country falls apart, and fucking Space Force. So listen, again, you don't need to take my word for it, in his own words, in his own words. He's just like any other Republican president. So anytime he does the whole, like, I'm anti-establishment, bitch, you are the establishment. You are, the, and you're most proud of your most establishment maneuvers. It's incredibly pathetic. So President Trump, or former President Trump, I should say, is... Uh, is weighing in on whether or not he wants to run in 2024. He spoke to Sean Hannity. Here's his reaction. Are you running again in 2024? What, what, what are the odds? If I were to First ask... First of all, it's a long time. The odds, the odds, what are the odds? Look, the odds. I got tremendous yeah. numbers. Nobody's ever gotten the numbers I got. No sitting presidents come even close. There's more popularity now than there was the day before the election because they see how bad things are at the border. They see what's going on. They see that their guns are going to be gone, their Second Amendment, their taxes are going up, regulations are going through the roof, jobs are going to go out. What do you see? You know, this is going to take a little while to show. But if they add all these regulations back, the jobs are going to be gone. Your energy independence is going to be gone. So I, I say this. I, I am looking at it very seriously beyond seriously uh, from a legal standpoint I don't want to really talk about it yet total to if you my favorite part is from a legal standpoint I don't want to really talk about it yet what does that mean from a legal standpoint there's nothing holding you back from discussing whether or not you want to run from a legal standpoint, I don't want to really, I don't want to do that. I, I don't know what that means, but it's just funny that he brings it up. Almost as like, what he's trying to do is like shut down the conversation without saying like, hey, I don't want to talk about this. So he says, legally speaking, I don't know if I can. Come on, man. It's just, he's so silly. Anyway, so let's run through the answer. He starts by saying, I do think this is a little bit of a, of a hint here. He starts by saying, first of all, it's a really long time away. Okay, we'll come back to that. Then he does the typical Trump, like, I'm tremendous, I'm amazing, I have the best numbers, I'm so popular, nobody's ever been as popular as me, even though I just lost an election to a guy who's half dead. Um, then he says, under Biden, your taxes are going to go up, your regulations are going to go up. By the way, if Biden raises taxes, he's been crystal clear, it will only be on people who make over $400,000 a year, and it will be on corporations. People want those taxes to go up, and it's not even close. The polls are overwhelmingly on the side of Joe Biden on this and against Donald Trump. So I hope the taxes go up for the wealthy. And the idea of regulations going up, we need the regulations to go up. You deregulated and allowed a lot more pollution. 
You deregulated clean water protection. You deregulated Wall Street. You deregulated the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and, and took the teeth out and made them irrelevant. You deregulated the predatory payday loan industry. Yes, I want all those regulations back. Those regulations are important for regular people. Of course I want those back. But he brings it up, of course, I get the bad thing. Then he says, and this is the part that's making the headline, I'm looking at it very seriously, beyond seriously. So he's beyond seriously looking at running in 2024. Now, what's my overall verdict on this? It's not that complicated. The reason why he's still he's out there and he's going to help in the midterms and he's going to campaign for people and he's going to be politically involved, the reason why he's doing that is because he wants to leave the door open to potentially run in 2024. That's what that means. He wants his revenge. He wants to strike back. And uh, he's trying to stay politically relevant and stay the main guy in the Republican Party. And by the way, he is. All the polls show it. He's still the number one guy in the Republican Party. It's almost astonishing, too, because usually when somebody loses, they have to go into the wilderness for a while, and they start being despised even by the people who just voted for them because they're viewed as a loser. But Trump somehow overcame that because his people are very pro-Trump, and, you know, there's nobody else on the horizon. Like, who's going to take him down? Liz Cheney? Ted Cruz? I, it's, just, it's just ridiculous. I mean, come on, we're being silly here. So he sort of weathered that storm, and he's pretty popular up front uh, with his own people. So he wants to leave the door open, but ultimately, I don't think he knows whether or not he's going to run yet. Because he said at the beginning, that was the hint. The hint was the very first thing he said. Usually the very first thing you say is the thing that's the most honest thing. And so he was asked, and he's like, it's a long time away. That means I don't really know. I don't know. But he wants to leave the opportunity there, the door open, the potential there, and that's why he's still super involved in Republican politics. So... I mean, we'll see. We'll see. Um, but there's going to be endless speculation. And I will say this. If he does run, and if, if it's up against Kamala, if Kamala somehow wins the Democratic primary, and it's Trump versus Kamala, oh, man. Oh, boy. I think Trump can win again. I think Trump can win again. If it's Trump versus Kamala Harris, Kamala already showed she has no idea how to run a campaign. None. She was out before Iowa. She went from being a favorite to not even being in for Iowa. Her support imploded. She doesn't know how to run a campaign. And so the media and the establishment prop her up and act like she's super serious and she's a you know, real candidate that is great. And you know now she's VP, all because she's this media creation and she's been pumped out there. But if she's got to stand on her own two legs against Donald Trump in a general election, oh, sweet Jesus. Oh, my God. Trump can win again. So look out. We don't know what the future holds. And, of course, this is pure speculation at this point. But a number of scenarios that can unfold are terrifying. Okay. Okay, next. All right, let's talk about the smug MSNBC hosts who uh, make the worst arguments you've ever heard in your life. Here we go, baby. I've been astonished at the media reaction to Andrew Yang. Um, I mean, they really are treating him like Bernie got treated by the media. They despise him. 
establishment media hates Andrew Yang. And listen, I honestly think it's not just the establishment media. It's also, I think, establishment politicians. I really think the reason why is it's twofold. Number one, he's for universal basic income, which they view as egregious and unacceptable and on par with, like, Medicare for all, which they're obviously, like, you know, super duper against. And that sort of transformative change they're resistant to. So I think that's one reason they hate him. And I think the other reason they hate him, very simply, he's an outsider. He, he made his way to politics not through the traditional route. And they only respect and support people who come up through the system, understand the hierarchy, get the pats on the heads and the approval from the higher-ups and the leadership, and you act as a good little servant to the establishment, and then you raise up through the ranks. Now, I have disagreements with Andrew Yang, of course. And, you know, Crystal and I interviewed Andrew Yang, and there were, there were times where we were very aggressive against him and asking him tough questions. But there's a difference between interviewing somebody or talking about somebody being disagreeing but being fair and policy-focused and just being a total smug prick asshole making arguments that make no sense. So, and that's what happened on MSNBC. So here's Morning Joe. Look at this conversation they have about Yang. Hey, uh, Donnie, I, I just got to ask, uh, we've got like the most important mayor's race in New York City probably in the last 50 years, maybe 100 years. I don't know. It's really important for a city that just keeps losing residents, uh, keeps losing businesses. Uh, and I've seen polls, Andrew Yang's, uh, I've seen him ahead in a lot of polls. You and I could do a better job running New York City than Andrew Yang. No offense, Andrew Yang. Uh, but but this, is, this is a problem, isn't it? What's going on in that race? Yeah, I, I love this city, Joe, and, and New York is in my blood, and I, I, so my friend, we're all so concerned. New York is at a tipping point right now. If New York goes too hard left, and the city is, is due. Uh, as you said, you know, if access continue to rise and it is a no longer a, a place that makes sense for business and businesses are losing, we lose. New York still has to be in certain ways a top-down city. A guy like Ray McGuire, who's a former city guy, African-American, uh, moderate voice, would be a great voice for New York, and he's got a shot. But Andrew Yang's of the world and some of the more extreme candidates, he's going to push New York in the wrong direction. We saw what happened with Amazon and AOC and her crowd when they got a hold of it, killed Amazon coming to Long Island City, which would have invented a completely new city. That kind of thinking, that takes over New York and kind of pushes the Amazons or the potential Amazons away. We're in trouble. It is a real tipping point for New York. Well, I, I, I'm not really talking about politics. New York is one of the most progressive cities in America. So if New York gets a progressive mayor, well, that's fine. It lines up with New York City. But you want that mayor to be confident. You want them to know what what they're actually doing. This is like yeah. a, I, I actually think it's the hardest political job in America and to have a political neophyte who ran for president uh, with some, some quirk. I mean, it's one thing running for president and putting some quirky ideas out there and getting some media attention. But, man, when you're running New York City, that was the most smug, elitist segment I've ever seen in my life. They're talking like they're, they're sitting in an expensive restaurant with 
Thurston Howell III around them. They might as well be smoking a giant cigar and having a huge top hat on. So let's go through it. He said, Andrew Yang is ahead in the polls. You and I could do a better job running New York City. No, you can't. No, you can't. I don't trust your fucking judgment, Donnie Deutsch or Morning Joe. I don't trust your judgment. But notice, you're going to see the theme running through this entire clip. The theme is leave the governing to the elites. All you pesky outsiders, you just get in the way. You're not serious. You're not serious. Um, He says, Donnie George says, if New York goes too hard left, the city is doomed. What does hard left mean exactly? I mean, I'd love for him to define it and give specifics as to what he's talking about. But, I mean, the argument is probably, hey, if you give everybody health care or you give everybody college or you cut everybody a check, the city's doomed. Really? Because I think those things are wonderful. I think those things are fantastic. And I think we have a lot of empirical evidence when you look at the Scandinavian countries, for example, that these policies are great and they have amazing results. And by the way, he, what does he say? Um, Joe, Morning Joe says he put some quirky ideas up. Quirky. It's quirky to give people universal basic income. That's what he's referring to, by the way, because he was talking about when he ran for president. It's quirky to talk about universal basic income. It's weird. It's outside of the ordinary. Even though we have social security checks, and we've had them for a really long time, somehow cutting a check to old people every month, everybody gets, oh, that's, we, that's the way we do it, so it's okay. But the idea of doing social security for everybody in the middle of a pandemic and a huge recession or depression, oh, that's quirky, that's weird, that's crazy. Um, And then he says, listen, the problem is it's no longer a place that makes sense for business, talking about New York City. That's absolute bullshit. New York City is one of the most famous cities in the world. It's not the most famous city in the world. The idea that businesses are just going to, hey, let me leave this gigantic market and potential for success, they're not going to do that. And beyond that point, I just interviewed Andrew Yang, and Andrew Yang said to me, he, he wants to see regulations increased on big business, on big business, but he wants to see basically the government get off the back of the small businesses, because the small businesses are struggling to get by, and sometimes there's red tape that's burdensome. He said, listen, for the small businesses, I want to remove the red tape. Now, listen, you might not agree with that if you're watching this, but it doesn't matter. The point is, They're wrong in their characterization of Andrew Yang's views. Andrew Yang is not anti-business by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, he has a pretty big libertarian streak, I would argue. More libertarian than myself, for example. And that applies to business. So they're just not even accurately characterizing his view. They have this, like, straw man they've created of him, and they're arguing against the straw man. And then Donnie Deutsch is such an idiot. He says, we saw what happened with Amazon and AOC. He's bringing up what happened with Amazon and AOC as if it's a bad thing. No, it was a good thing because what was going to happen is the government was going to give a tremendous amount of money, a welfare check to Amazon, to set up shop in New York. So let me get this straight, Donnie Deutsch. You're against socialism, but you're 100% for corporate socialism. You want to give a welfare check to Jeff Bezos for doing Dickie McGee's acts. Hey, thank you for showing up. Why don't you loot the treasury? Is that what you want to do? Clearly that's what you want to do. The, the thing that AOC did is not just, oh, it's good from a progressive perspective. It's good from a conservative perspective. 
A libertarian will tell you, an actual libertarian like Ron Paul will tell you, I don't want the government cutting a welfare check to Amazon just to set up a business there. No state government and no federal government should set up some sort of welfare check to give Amazon in order for them to, to go somewhere. They should just go and open their business wherever they want to open their business, and they shouldn't have to be incentivized with taxpayer money. Listen, I'm a New York taxpayer. I don't want my money going towards that. I don't want my money going towards Amazon. I'd much rather have my money go towards healthcare and education. So, I mean, these guys, they're just idiots. And this gets to the main point. He said, well, I'm not talking about politics here. I'm talking about competency. See, that's the mindset. The mindset isn't, let me look at your ideology and evaluate it based on the ideas and the policies. And let me tell you what I disagree with, why I disagree with it, what I agree with. That's not the way he looks at it. The way he looks at it is almost like a royal family type thing. You know, almost like an aristocracy or a kleptocracy, where it's like the, the good, righteous people have already risen to the top of society and have been deemed appropriate by the establishment. And you, sir, have come up in an outsider way, and that's not acceptable. So it's not about your politics. It's about your competency is the thing I have a problem with. How the fuck do you know how competent or incompetent he is when he hasn't held elected office yet? You just assume he's not competent. Why? Because the establishment doesn't like him. And you think that means, oh, he must not be good at the job. No, what that means is he's not a bullshitter. That's what that means. That means he's not a little sycophantic ladder-climbing loser who's totally vapid and vacuous and empty and only cares about self-aggrandizement and narcissism. Like somebody like Mayor Pete, for example, just to give one example. This is the most smug, elitist segment I've ever seen. They dislike him because he's an outsider. They dislike him because of stuff like UBI. They dislike him because they've caricatured him as far left. Talk to somebody who's actually on the far left. They'll tell you how far left Andrew Yang is. They're just a bunch of idiots. He's a cackling idiot. These guys are both morons. And they pontificate about politics every morning. And they don't even know what the fuck they're talking about. They don't even know what they're talking about. This is the smuggest, most elitist segment I've ever seen. And you wonder why people hate the media. You know? Look at the poll. New York voters love Andrew Yang. I'm sure some of it has to do with policy, but a lot of it has to do with he just seems like a likable guy. You know who's deeply, deeply unlikable? These guys. These guys. They were born on third base and they thought they hit a triple. You know? Morning Joe thinks he's actually talented, which is why he's on TV. Absolutely absurd. Ridiculous. The establishment and the elitists are the problem. And the outsiders are the answer. Now, it varies. You have to look at on the merits of each outsider. But the answer is certainly not this nonsense. You and I can do a better job running New York City. Why? Because we're thoroughbreds and we have the pedigree. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. God, I hate these guys. They're the worst. Okay. Next. Well, this is going to be a fun segment. I'm doing this segment because I want everybody to yell at me and dislike the video. (laughs) All right, I'm kidding. That's not why I'm doing this segment. I'm doing this segment because I think it's important and I want to talk about it, even though this debate literally is dead and gone because the moment of opportunity was missed. But anyway, um, Noam Chomsky went on a podcast. Hold on one second, and I'll get you the the Vanguard podcast. 
and he was asked about force to vote. And um, he gave a very definitive answer. Let's watch, and then I'll respond. Something else I wanted to ask you about, Professor, and I don't know how much, if at all, you pay attention to the online leftist community, but one of the more fracturing and extremely divisive debates in recent memory occurred over this idea called force the vote, which sought to pressure progressive congresspeople into using their leverage to essentially threaten Speaker Pelosi's reelection, and as a result, potentially get some policy concessions, or at very least a floor vote on Medicare for all. Um, if you paid attention at all to this debate, did you have an opinion on the strategy? And do you think that elected progressives, uh, Congress people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Ro Khanna, um, who believe in policies like Medicare for All and a Green New Deal, um, have a responsibility to be fighting to push um, President Joe Biden and his administration even harder um, by using their leverage in instances like this uh, or to hold up key bills in order to get policy concessions? Let's take a look at the real world, not a dream world, the world we live in. Suppose you push, suppose you manage to push Pelosi to say, let's have a vote on Medicare for all. And in the Senate, push Schumer to have it. We know exactly what's going to happen. Fifty Republicans will vote against it. A large number of Democrats will vote against it. Two, certainly. Manchin and Cinema, probably plenty of others. So what we're saying is, let's do something to be defeated. Is that a strategy? I mean, you know, it's nice to have, to say, I want this. But, but we're not children who say, I want this piece of candy. I want to ask for it even if I'm going locked up in my room. Now, Chomsky goes on to basically say, this isn't the answer. This isn't a solution. The solution is, and I quote, intensive organizing on the ground. So he says, oh, that's, this is not the way to achieve it. The way to achieve it, you have to start with the intensive organizing on the ground. Um, now, I, I mean, I would say, yes, Noam, that's exactly right. The answer is intensive organizing on the ground. But you need a spark in order to do that. And you need a unifying force to be able to do that. You need a moment in time and an aim and a goal that lights the fire under everybody's ass so they start doing the work and doing it with more people than ever before. So he says the answer is intensive organizing on the ground. What do you think can and will trigger the intensive organizing on the ground? Maybe trying to force the vote in the middle of a pandemic for universal health care. Okay, so I, listen, let me rewind a second. I'll, I'll break this down a little more specifically. But let me just say up front, I love Noam Chomsky. He's one of the biggest intellectual influences on me. He's a living legend, and he's not some sort of corrupt neoliberal, okay? And I think this is important to point out because you sh don't malign somebody's intentions when there's no reason to do so. So that's just counterproductive, and more importantly, it's just factually wrong. So it is possible for sometimes to just disagree with people, and in my opinion, for people to be very wrong. But maligning intentions is something diff different, and I try my best not to do that because I think that's counterproductive, and I just think it's not true to say X, Y, or Z is corrupt and 
That's why they have this view. He's not corrupt. That's not why he has this view. He has this view because he genuinely has this view. But now let's, um, let's respond to it. So the point he's making is like, you don't have the numbers. What's the fucking point? You're not going to win. Why would you do it? That's what he's saying. But my response to that is, we will literally never have the numbers. Never. So does that mean we should never fight for it and never get a vote on it? Now, if he's being logically consistent, he would say, yes. If he was being logically consistent, he would say, yes, we're never going to get a vote on Medicare for All, and I'm okay with that. Now, I presume he wouldn't say that because I totally believe him that he's for Medicare for All. So then that leads to the next question, which is, if we're never going to have the votes, and we don't have the votes now, but we have a block of progressives who can apply pressure, why would you not use the block of progressives who can apply pressure? Guys, you know, I've said it a million times, but I have to say it a million more, apparently. I'm not the one who came up with these strategies. When we founded Justice Democrats, it was based on let's be a left Tea Party. And the Tea Party, famously, they despised Obama as much as they despised John Boehner. And they gave their party hell. And because they gave their own party hell, and they threw tantrums, and they were willing to shoot the hostage, they got a lot of concessions. So I didn't come up with this. I looked empirically at the things that worked, and I said, let's do that on the left. Now, it's mighty inconvenient for everybody who is having this forced-to-vote debate because they're acting like there's some sort of high-minded wisdom in not fighting, and they would point to the fact that, look, the Justice Democrats aren't fighting, so therefore... This must be the right move, but it's pretty inconvenient that a co-founder of Justice Democrats is telling you, you're wrong. And what would be in the spirit and the vein of the reason why the group was created would be for them to try force to vote. So if we're never going to have the votes, and we don't have the votes now, but we have a block that can throw their weight around and apply pressure and use their leverage, of course you should apply pressure. Of course you should, you know, use your leverage. Now, listen, I'm under no illusion. Am I saying, like, this is definitely going to pass? No, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is a 1% chance is a hell of a lot better than a 0% chance, and you're guaranteed a 0% chance if you don't fucking vote on it. So how would we, how would we even have a 1% chance? I should explain that. Listen, I was part of the original move where we decided this was justice democrats and it was a bunch of the other lefty groups we decided this was back when i was with them let's do a massive drive to get congress people who are already there to sign on to at the time it was john conyers bill i think it was hr 676 it was the medicare for all bill in the house and so what we did again it was myself it was justice democrats it was jan fuger it was all the other lefty groups we did this massive pressure campaign where we had everybody, including you guys. I remember talking about it on this show. This is the power I have is through this show, right? So I told you guys, call your Congress people and call them in droves and tell them if you support H.R. 676 and sign on to it, I will do everything I can to get you reelected, and I'll tell everybody I know to vote for you. If you're not for H.R. 676, 
not only will I not vote for you, I will look for a primary opponent against you and support the primary opponent against you. And guys, even though these politicians are corrupt and beholden to big money interests, you know what happened? They thought, holy shit, I'm getting so many calls in my office that my mailbox is full or my, you know, voicemail box is full. That's what I meant to say. And the phone's ringing nonstop off the hook and everybody's saying the same thing. If I don't do this, I'm going to lose my reelection. So what happened? We took the number of politicians who were for Medicare for All in the House. It was like six or 12 or some abysmally low number. And we brought it to over 100. We brought it to over 100. Now, that was when we decided, let's, put, let's do a pressure campaign. That was mostly through phone calls. If you get to a place where you force a vote in the House on Medicare for All, you say, we're going to deny Nancy Pelosi your speakership unless and until there's a vote on Medicare for All. That is a mobilizing moment where now it's not just all the progressive groups on the same page and everybody making phone calls, right? Now it's also... Let's march on Washington. Let's try to get a million bodies in the streets saying we need universal health care in a pandemic. We're the only developed country that doesn't have universal health care. So when you have that mobilizing moment and that spark and the, the vote is going to happen, well, you bring immense pressure on Washington, D.C. Now, even given that, do I think it's going to pass? Probably not. Probably not. But I do think it'll do better than a lot of people believe. And so if slash when it fails, and again, I only think it's like a 1% chance of success, but if slash when it fails, it's not over. See, here's the thing. Everybody, like, everybody thinks it's cool and edgy to be like defeatist or really intellectual. I'm so intellectual that I never want to vote on any of my priorities. The fuck is that? You only see this on the left, by the way. You never see it on the right, ever. They're always like, what are you talking about? I vote a thousand times on the shit I want implemented. And that's my message to the left. You can, you can just keep voting. on. If you lose, you regroup, you come back, and do it again. If you're a professional basketball team and you lose one game, you say, oh, we're quitting the league. No, you show up for the next game, and you fight, and you practice, and you fight some more. It's the same thing in politics. If you lose a Medicare for All vote, okay, regroup and go fight again and try to force another vote. It, politics is not rocket science. I will take a vote on one of my priorities at literally any time, and I will use it to try to mobilize, try to organize, try to get the grassroots involved, try to apply pressure, and keep trying to get more and more people. I don't care if we lose the vote eight times. Maybe we'll get it on the ninth time. But you have to fucking fight. You have to fight. And final point I'll make in response to Noam Chomsky is very simple. Oh, we don't have the vote, so what's the fucking point? That's basically his argument. What are we, children? By the way... I don't think it's a good idea to compare people who need and want Medicare for all to children who want candy. I actually think that's really dismissive and condescending and gross. There's a lot of people who were at like the force to vote town hall who were like, I'm going bankrupt for medical bills or I can't afford my medicine. Tens of millions of people with no health insurance. Medical bills is one of the top causes of bankruptcy in the United States of America. You have 45,000 to 60,000 people that die every year because they don't have access to basic health care. Oh, it's the children who want candy. No, I know you didn't mean anything by it, but Jesus fucking Christ, man. What are you doing? What are you doing? Um, but the point I was going to make is, his argument is, we don't have the votes, so what's the point? Don't be a child. We don't have the votes. 
for anything right now. Anything. Anything. And guess what? I don't want to sound, I don't want to, you know, make people feel like there's no hope or anything. We will never have the votes for anything. And I mean that literally. I do. You're ne- it's never going to be like, oh, would you look at that? 60% of the House of Representatives and 60% of the Senate are in favor of fill in the blank, free college, ending all the wars, universal basic income. We are never going to have the votes for any of our priorities, ever. So I ask again, does that mean, what are you, a child? What are you, stupid? You want to waste time on that? What are you doing? No, it doesn't mean that. It means you fight and you claw tooth and nail to win on these things. Sometimes it's going to work. Sometimes it's not going to work. But what guarantees loss is never fighting. So you have to do everything you can, and this is part of everything you can do. Now, I will concede this one point, which is if the argument is, hey, maybe we shouldn't prioritize that because there's a much greater chance it's going to lose compared to, hey, instead of a 1% chance of Medicare for all passing, there's like a 40% chance of uh, minimum wage passing. So maybe we should have the fight there. That's a fair point, but that's not the point they're making. That's not the point he's making. The argument is, the implication is, we don't have the votes, what's the point? But the response to that is, we don't have the votes for anything. So what's the point of fighting for anything? You fight for it because it's the right thing to do. It's the principled thing to do. And you want the history books to know you did everything you can at every moment in order to do it. I mean, it's like saying, hey, in 1955, why are you going to vote on, on civil rights? We don't have the votes. That doesn't mean you shouldn't take the fight on. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try to get a vote. That doesn't mean you shouldn't change hearts and minds. That doesn't mean you shouldn't organize with a specific goal in mind of getting the votes. The time, there's a famous quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and again, I'll conclude on this. The time is always right to do what is right. That's it. That's all it is. Everybody thinks they're, you know, it's somehow so high-minded or intellectual or strategic to lay in a chalk outline of yourself and do nothing. It's not. It's not. This stuff matters. And since it matters, the time is always right to do what is right. And if you lose, you fight again. It's that simple. It's that simple. Now, you know, people can call me an idiot or whatever in response to this segment. But, you know, again, just know the people who you guys love so much in Congress, one of the reasons they're there is because of the group I co-founded. So maybe, just maybe, don't be so fucking dismissive about the strategies that we talk about. Because, again, I think there's merit to it. And I've never once heard, hey, this isn't going to work, but this might. There was, there's none of that from anybody who's against force to vote. This isn't going to work, so therefore, not all Chomsky goes on to say is intensive organizing on the ground is the answer. I agree, that's the answer. But towards what ends? You have to organize towards a vote on Medicare for all. That's what you have to do. Like, am I losing my mind here? Am I going crazy? The answer is intensive organizing on the ground, but we already have an overwhelming majority of the population is on the side of Medicare for all. We already have that. So all the polls show that. And we're already in a, in, in a pandemic. It turns out the only real constituency against it right now is people on the far right, but then also the health insurance lobby. Because it, it, it's corruption. It's a scam. They bought a lot of the politicians. So 
I mean, think about it. He's or, organize more among people who, like, already agree with you, basically. That's not, that's not the end-all, be-all. You do need to intensively organize on the ground and get even more support, but you need to organize on the ground towards the vote. What are you just organizing for no reason? Like, let's organize, but let's not have the vote, but let's definitely organize. Or let's organize and let's have the vote in what, 10 years? Well, I got news for you, we're not going to have the votes in 10 years either. So you got to try to make it happen. Organize and maybe in 20 years we'll have the vote. We're not going to have the, we're never going to have the votes. And so you have to try to get us to a position through fighting towards the end of having the vote to have even a prayer. God, okay, I know I said last point a million times. I know I said last point a million times, but Lyndon B. Johnson was a vicious racist, a vicious racist. He signed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. It would have been so easy a year before that to be like, what's the point fighting? He's a vicious racist. He's never going to sign those bills. Why are we wasting our time? But he ended up signing them, didn't he? Because the political reality changed on the ground. The only way you force these politicians and pressure these politicians to do the right thing is if you and I change the political reality on the ground. We're not just some passive observers of what's going on in politics. We are active participants. So do the active participation as much as possible and fight every opportunity you get. And if we lose, which we probably will, regroup and fight again and do it until you fucking win. I'm tired of this defeatist nonsense. I'm sorry I am. I love Noam Chomsky, huge intellectual hero of mine. Um, he's not corrupt. This doesn't mean I'm canceling him or whatever. But I just really disagree on this point. And um, I think the thing that's most frustrating to me is how dismissive a lot of intelligent people are of the only strategy at this point that had any chance of working. Well, now we missed our window, and we'll have to regroup and find another way. But I'll take a 1% chance over a 0% chance any day of the week. Apparently, these people won't. Okay. All right, let me take a break. When we come back, um, Biden's new bill. Stay right there, ladies and gentlemen. Stay right there.
your back, bitch. All right. Let's continue. Let's continue with our talkathon today. <clears throat> okay. Uh, where were we? Oh, let's talk about Biden's new bill. Joe Biden has a a new bill that he's working on. I want to show you the details. This is from Jeff Stein of the Washington Post, who does phenomenal reporting. Sources expect main parts of White House's coming second package to look roughly like $225 billion for child care, $225 billion for paid family leave, $200 billion for universal pre-K, anywhere from $300 to $200 billion for education and free community college, $400 billion expanded child credit, uh, child tax credit uh, for, it says 25, I guess that means 2025, so five more years, um, or four more years, I should say. Hmm. So anyway, um, this is what we know right now. Here's the big question. Is this going to be an infrastructure, or excuse me, not infrastructure, that's not what I meant to say, reconciliation package, or is this going to be regular order? If it's regular order, they don't even want these things. They're just virtue signaling. If it's reconciliation, they want them or something close to this, and so they're actually trying to get it through. And I brought infrastructure up because... I'm under the impression that the infrastructure bill, which is paired with the tax stuff, that that's going to be a reconciliation bill. And so that one they really want to pass. Um, Again, this one, we'll know if they're serious about it, if they try to do regular order or if they do um, reconciliation. Regular order means we're just trying to virtue signal and pretend like we're in favor of child care, paid family leave, universal pre-K, free community college, expanded child tax credit. Um, because for regular order, there's less than no chance of it passing. You're just not going to get 60 votes. You're not even close to 60 votes. So we'll see. But, you know, there's a lot of this stuff that goes on, man. I mean, I hate to say it, but it's true. This is stuff that early on when I followed politics, I didn't really get what was going on. But now I do, having followed it for so long. Oftentimes the House will pass these bills, and they have a Democratic majority there. They'll pass great bills, but they'll do it knowing that it's going to die in the Senate, and they wouldn't actually pass it if it was going to pass the Senate. So they do this all the time. And um, it would be a similar thing that the White House is doing here, depending on how they try to do this. If they do it the regular order, they don't even want any of these things. But we'll see. And the other question is, just how universal are we really talking here? Like, if these are actually universal, I'll give tremendous credit to them. But if these aren't universal, it's just weaselly as fuck. And a lot of people underneath this tweet were saying the same thing, which is like, do UBI. Do UBI, because that applies to everybody, and it's basically a Social Security check for everybody. And that would be something that leaves a a lasting legacy. So anyway, at face value, a lot of these things look good, but it's going to depend on how they try to get it through. And it's also going to depend on how universal it really is. And it also depends on... um, just how much it gets watered down and destroyed, which is yet to be seen. Now, Joe Manchin is a giant piece of it, and I will explain to you exactly what he did now. 
Joe Manchin is uh, doing Joe Manchin things. Let me show you this new reporting from Daily Sirota at the Daily, David Sirota at the Daily Poster. Scoop, Joe Manchin mocked Bernie Sanders' $15 minimum wage legislation in a closed-door meeting today with corporate lobbyists who are leading the battle to permanently block it, according to a video reviewed by the Daily Poster. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. So that is the National Restaurant Association thing that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema went to. And um, National Restaurant Association, it's the lobby group that was fighting against the $15 minimum wage. And they happily spoke to them and happily sold out to them. And, you know, they're making all the right connections so that they get giant campaign contributions for their re-election attempts. Um, let me give you some more here. So Manchin specifically went after Bernie. And um, he went after him because he continues to push for a $15 minimum wage. He said, quote, we've been having meetings on the minimum wage, and I can't for the life of me understand why they don't take a win on 11. I'll explain why in a minute. Bernie Sanders is totally committed in his heart and soul that $15 is the way to go. Well, it might be the way to go, Bernie, but it ain't going to go. Damn, you don't have the votes for it. It's not going to happen. So they're going to walk away with their pride saying we fought for 15, got nothing. Manchin said there are other Democrats who agree with him that the path they're going down is wrong. He added that he doesn't think the minimum wage should be increased to more than $11, and he said there should still be a lower sub-minimum wage for workers who rely on tips. Quote, if it comes down to one person, I don't believe it should be above $11. I don't think the tipped wage should ever go above half that, Manchin said. The federal minimum wage is currently $7.25 an hour, and the sub-minimum wage for tipped workers is $2.13 an hour. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, so to his, the first thing he said there, we've been having meetings on the minimum wage. I can't for the life of me understand why they don't take $11. The answer is that is not a living wage anywhere in the country. Even in West Virginia, you need 15 to live. So that's why they don't take 11. It's because it's not a living wage. And the other dirty trick is they want to they wanna tie it to – um, median wage growth or inflation, which means you'd get automatic raises. Now, in theory, automatic raises sound wonderful, right? Like, oh, it'd be great. It rises every year. The problem with that is it will always be the equivalent of $11 today. That is not a living wage anywhere. So you're permanently making it not a living wage. And they'll never revisit it because anytime you try to bring it up in the future, if they do this, they'll say, we indexed it to median wage growth or inflation, so you get a raise every year. Why would we revisit it? It goes up every year. Why are you being so greedy? I'm not kidding, man. So that's why they don't want to take 11, because 11 is a fucking scam, total scam. God damn it. And here he is. Here he is going after Bernie, because Bernie wants $15 an hour. So what's the takeaway here? The takeaway here is they ain't going to fucking budge unless they're made to budge. And in order for them to budge, they would need Biden to be in favor of the $15 minimum wage for realsies and that he'd fight for it. And Biden would need to call a meeting with them and talk to him and say, listen, carrot or stick, dog, carrot or stick, what can I do to get you to support $15? There's something. Don't tell me there's nothing. I know there's something. You tell me what it is and I'll do it. You want a position in the administration. You want some sort of uh, subsidy for... West Virginia. What do you want? What do you want? I'll give you whatever you want. 
But if you cross me on this, there's going to be punishments. There's going to be punishments. We'll campaign against you. We'll come up with a primary opponent, campaign against you. We'll make sure all Democratic dollars go to them and not you. So you'll basically be, um, your career career will be ended if you go against this. So you make the choice. You make the choice. That's the only way to do it. But Biden doesn't want to fight for this, so he's not going to do any of that. And so here we are. They're making very, very clear they're not going to be for 15. And um, if you're not going to make a direct appeal to them behind closed doors, then we're stuck. And guess what? Joe Manchin's tactics will forever work because he plays hardball. So, by the way, if there's any lesson to take away from this, other than the thing I just described, which is how you could get them potentially to fall in line for the $15 minimum wage. God love fight for 15, but what this tells me is for negotiating purposes alone, everybody should have been fighting for like $20 an hour minimum wage or $25 an hour minimum wage because then the compromise would become 15. If the discourse all along was like, we want $25 an hour, then the compromise would have been, all right, 15. You know what I mean? So... Um, that's another lesson to take away is that you always want to stake out a, an extreme sounding position so that the compromise position is the real position, you know. So anyway, Joe Manchin is the worst. Kirsten Sinema is the worst. And um, they are really, really, really holding back the country from real progress. Okay, next. Let's talk about George W. Bush. Never in a million years did I think I would... uh, read a story this ridiculous. This is, irony's dead. Irony's dead. When you read this, you go, how is this possible that this man spoke these words and didn't catch himself at any point? It's just, it, it blows the mind. So George W. Bush has been doing a round of interviews, and um, he gave us a moment that makes me want to shove a fork directly in my eyeball. So Business Insider is reporting here. Former President George W. Bush said he's concerned by the spread of misinformation online. Speaking with the Today Show's Hoda Kutub in an interview on Tuesday morning, Bush said he was concerned about lies and falsehoods circulating on the Internet. Quote, what's really troubling is how much misinformation there is and the capacity of people to spread all kinds of untruth, he said. I don't know what we're going to do about that. I know what I'm going to do about it. I'm not on Twitter, Facebook, any of that stuff. George W. Bush is complaining about misinformation and lies spread online. George W. Bush. That's like a serial killer 
complaining about morality. That's like a rapist being concerned with sexual assault. How do you not realize how ridiculous you sound? George W. Bush and his entire administration lied us into an illegal war that we're still in, by the way, where minimum 200,000 innocent Iraqis are dead, and our own soldiers, many of our own soldiers are dead, and there was rampant, disgusting war profiteering, where on the U.S. military bases there was shoddy electric work, people got killed in the showers, and there was all these no-bid contracts that went out to political allies in the military-industrial complex. He is arguably one of the biggest liars in history. You want to talk about a lie that did damage. This isn't a lie in a vacuum that had no real-world consequences. This had the most real-world consequences of maybe any lie ever told ever. Saddam has weapons of mass destruction, so we got to go get them. You know? And they kept moving the goalposts as to why we're there. But originally they were like, hey, he's got weapons of mass destruction. The implication was he's going to use them on us. Turns out he didn't have weapons of mass destruction. And even if he did, he wouldn't have used them on us. That's ridiculous. He lied us into an illegal war. And he's like, you know, I don't really like lies. I don't like liars. And then, by the way, so the real crux of what he's saying is, hey, I don't know what we're going to do about this. This is him saying, man, they really should, like, regulate this. They really should, like, censor and deplatform and ban things I don't like. That's what he's saying. And, as you know, this would never be used. You're going to trust George W. Bush, and you're going to trust, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or Jack from Twitter or some Silicon Valley oligarch board to determine what is and isn't truth, what's allowed and what's not allowed. You're going to trust some government agency, a ministry of truth, to say, we think this is acceptable and we think this is not acceptable. These are the same people who were pushing the war in Iraq. It was the government. So if they had their way, if they were the regulators, they would have banned everybody saying he doesn't have weapons of mass destruction. They would have banned the dissent. So do you see the trick? Do you see the game that's being played here? Do you see how this is a power struggle first and foremost? That's what this is. This isn't about, hey, let's actually objectively determine what's true and what's not and not allow the untrue things and allow the true things. guy who's the biggest liar in history is saying something should be done about this. I do not trust whatever he thinks the solution is. Because he is the problem in the same way that, you know, they think like mainstream media, they're truth tellers and alternative media are not. Nothing could be further from the truth. Of course, there are alternative outlets that are terrible. Of course. But mainstream media, they're some of the biggest spreaders of misinformation. There's no doubt about it. And they give, they give us example after example. I mean, they buried WikiLeaks stuff, whether it's the 2016 election or the original stuff about war crimes being committed in Iraq. They're the ones who pushed Russiagate relentlessly. They're the ones who were wrong on Syria. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous that we're even having this conversation. And George W. Bush is the one who's out there like, something should be done about this. Lies are bad. Yeah, lies are really bad. And yours was maybe the worst one in history. This guy's lucky he's not in The Hague because he's a war criminal. And honestly, he belongs there. Okay. All right, let's do the Milo Yiannopoulos story now.
Milo Yiannopoulos is trying desperately to remain relevant. So the reason he was in the news recently is because he's declared himself ex-gay. He's no longer gay. He's been cured of his gayness. Well, here he is discussing his new book. Let's see how that went. My next book, for instance, I'm, I'm currently putting it together. It's called Make America Hate Again. And the idea behind the book is um, that we have lost our understanding of, um, you know, it is, it is right and proper to hate hateful things. My next book is going to be an attempt to rehabilitate getting in touch with activistic feelings we all have. You know, when you, when you hate something, when you have a feeling of revulsion, it's like disgust. You may feel your hands and feet getting cold as the blood rushes to your, your, the center of your body. Well, there's a reason for that. Your body is preparing for war. You, your body is getting ready for a fight, protecting its organs and sacrificing your extremities. Because when you see something that produces hate in you, you have an evolutionary response that prepares you to hit it or to hit something and get out of there. You know? That's what your body's doing. When you see something, it makes you go, you know, and that's what happens when you see Drag Queen Story Hour and you like, lose your mind. Your body is physically preparing for a fight. You can't just deny that exists. You can't just pretend that that's not happening. So what I want to do in, in the book um, is, is explain to people that, that this is a normal, healthy, and indeed entirely necessary natural instinct that also serves a spiritual purpose, which is to help you distinguish between the things you should be around and the things that you should seek to destroy if you possibly can. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So we're going to get to the title of his book in a, in a little bit, which is just, I mean, that's, I have no words, even though I'll come up with some. Um, but, I mean, we could debunk his argument immediately. Oh, it, you know, if, if you feel revulsion, you're grossed out by something, that's useful, and that's your body telling you something that's legit, always. Whatever you're feeling that's there for a reason. There's a point to that. That's the argument he's making. And so if you extrapolate, and you don't even really need to extrapolate because I'm sure he says it at some point, what he's saying is like, hey, if you see a trans person and react like that, it's, hey, there's a reason why you're reacting like that. If you see a gay person or you see gay people kissing or a gay married couple with kids or whatever, this is the argument he's trying to make. Because remember, he was so, such a self-hater, assuming you believe that his whole transformation is real or whatever, that... He's like, I need to stop this terrible life path of being gay. So he views that as like one of the things that you should be disgusted by, and there's a reason why you should be disgusted by it. Okay, um, some people might react in that sort of way where they're like shocked and taken aback when they see somebody with a physical deformity. Does that mean that the person with physical deformity should be completely taken out of society and shunned and... You know, there's a reason why you're reacting like that, because your body has wisdom in it. And if, you're, if you react in a disgusted way, got to listen to your body. No, that would be an instance of your body reacting in a way that's actually unfair and not the right reaction. And, you know, your brain and reason and logic can override your more base primitive instincts and say, whoa, I'm, I'm messed up. I didn't mean to react like that. I'm sorry. This person's a human being, just like anybody else. That's one example. Here's another example. You know what people are disgusted by and, and revolted by and, you know, you could have a like, guttural, like, ugh, reaction to? Shitting. Smell something disgusting. Somebody farts, whatever. Does that mean that we should ban that? 
does that mean, you know, nobody should ever do that? Because it's disgusting, bro. It's, it's repulsive. Get away from it. Body's telling you something. No. It's, it's such a bad argument. He's just saying, whatever your base instincts are, give in to them. People have base instincts. Thank God, I don't think it's a large percentage of the population, but there are plenty of people who have a base instinct that they want to kill, that they react hostily and aggressively, and they want to kill. Does that mean, oh, it's the wisdom in your body telling you what to do? So anyway, this gets to the main point. The main point is, the name of this book is Make America Hate Again. Imagine how pathetic and angry you must be to, to write something like that, to think that this is some sort of philosophy to live your life by. Hey, let's go back to all of our old bigotries. Let's go back to always reacting with our instincts, even if our instincts are dead wrong. If there were cavemen on the open plains and they were engaging in sexual violence or rape or whatever of the female, the cave women, is, that, is there an argument there of like, oh, better listen to those base instincts and react accordingly. If people, when people talk about hate, what's he talking about? He's talking about hatred towards Minority communities, whether it's trans people, gay people, black people, whatever, different races. He's making an argument, make America hate again. What a sad, angry little man. I actually don't know his height, but, I mean, he's trying so hard to stay relevant, and he's getting more and more absurd as time goes by. And listen, I don't even, I mean... Do you even believe the whole, like, I'm ex-gay now thing? I don't think it's possible to shake free of your sexuality. So if he was actually gay, he's clearly still gay, and he's just a self-hater, you know? And he might be doing this literally just for the eyeballs and the attention. Like, he might, behind closed doors, be like, I'm just playing and I'm just acting out there. Of course I'm still gay, you know? So, whatever. Uh, he's a ridiculous person, and he's literally a hateful person, and it's funny that he's now openly arguing for the things that they used to whisper behind closed doors. Okay. All right, now we go from Milo Yiannopoulos to another genius by the name of Rave Dubin. Here we go. Dave Rubin is uh, continuing his streak of getting progressively more and more ridiculous. Um, here he is responding to an interview that Trump recently did. Let's see what he has to say. Telling you guys, I miss him. If I go, I'm not going to get invited to Hollywood parties. That's all right. That's all right. We host parties here of dissidents and radicals. Um, I miss him. And actually, everything he said there, yes, is he a little more bronze than usual? The hair is like a little bit crazier. And the way he speaks is still as stilted and, and strange, the patterns, all that stuff. But man, Basically, in that minute-and-a-half clip, he told you the truth. Like, it was the truth. The media would have went bananas if he had fallen down the steps three times, right? And they pretty much ignored it or excused it or said it had something to do with the wind. But the line, I've never seen too much wind. It can get a little windy, and then I think he said, not enough to knock you down, something like that. Like, he's closer to telling the truth than anyone we have in politics right now, and that is just a bizarre reality. It is, I, I don't think... I think it is quite possible that within our lifetimes we will not see anyone in a, in a political sense, at least not right now, let's say for the next 10 years, because Lord only knows which way this whole world is going to go, 
that will be remotely as truthful as him, right? Like, it's not like they were discussing something so important right there, but, like, for all the craziness about the way he speaks, like, the truth is sort of under it versus what everyone else in politics does, which is try to pretend they're a great person, and then they just lie and bullshit to you. Uh, he also made a point that, you know, 79 is not that old. It actually isn't. Somehow that last part was the most ridiculous thing you said of everything. 79 is not that old. No, it actually isn't. We, we don't need to get into that too much. He's such a petty, sycophantic loser. Listen, I, I actually despise this new thing where everybody accuses everybody else who's some sort of, you know, YouTuber, pundit, whatever, of being a grifter. I'm actually really annoyed by that because it's just lazy and it's thrown out there whenever you just disagree with somebody or don't like somebody. But I have to say, because I have personal experience with Dave Rubin, I know beyond any doubt he indeed is a grifter. He's, he's literally doing this for the money. Because I've had conversations with him. This was back when he worked with TYT, and he was nominally on the left. Um, he was the only person in this business who said to me, like, so what's your end goal? TV show? You want to get on TV? And I remember thinking, like, no, Dave. I like what I'm doing for what it is. Like, the day-to-day stuff, the dotting the I's, the crossing the T's, the picking the stories, the reporting the stories, all I enjoy that for what it is. I'm not, there is no, I need to get from point A to point B. In his mind, he's super careerist. I want to get from point A to point B. He's one of these guys who didn't care how he got famous. He just wanted to get famous. And uh, so he found a lane. He found a niche. And his thing was, I'm the guy who left the left. But see, the problem is, there was some novelty there when it was like, oh, I'm still a liberal, but I'm the world's last liberal, and I just happen to agree with Republicans on everything. He was very useful to the right when that was his lane. But now the transitionary phase is done, and now he's just openly like a conservative pundit, but he's not as good as the other conservative pundits. Now, I I disagree with all of them. I disagree with Ben Shapiro. I disagree with Stephen Crowder. I I think they're all wrong about virtually everything. Um... But there's more entertainment value among the Shapiros and the Crowders than there ever is among Ruben, and he's just bad at this. So when he says the stuff he says there, are, are, you're not even trying, dude. Trump's the, the most truthful president or whatever or something and that we're ever going to see. Okay, there was an analysis from the Washington Post. Now, granted, hold your fire. I'm going to concede some stuff in a second. I'm not the biggest fan of the Washington Post by any stretch of the imagination. But they calculated over his four years in office how many lies he told. They said 30,573 lies over a four-year period. I grant you, the Washington Post is questionable. I'm sure they included plenty of things on the list of lies that indeed weren't lies. So let's be beyond kind and beyond fair. Let's be as charitable as humanly possible. And let's say... Cut it in half. Trump only lied about 15,200 and some odd times. That's still 15,000 lies over a four-year period. The guy is a colossal liar. He's a, a notorious and infamous liar. How do you not see that? But that's the thing. It, you don't, when Ruben talks, he doesn't care about like, the truth value of what he's saying. He's just talking. He's just trying to now rep the lane of, like, I'm a conservative commentator, guys. And he ends up looking ridiculous and saying shit like this. My favorite Trump lie of all time actually has very little to do with policy, even though the policy ones are, you know, told plenty of terrible lies there. Um, But it has to do with 
he used to pretend, before, when he was younger, he used to pretend to be his own publicist, and he called himself John Miller. There was John Miller one time, and I think John Barron another time, and um, he would call all, like, the stupid, um, you know, tabloid magazines, and he would say, oh, Donald Trump is dating the hottest, most amazing celebrity women, and they all really love him, and um, so then some of the tabloids would run the stories, and... People found out way later that this is Trump calling, pretending he's his own publicist, and telling people, oh, women love Trump. They adore Trump. You should write a story about that. And there was one reporter who recorded him when he did one of these calls. The idiot didn't even change his voice. He sounds like Donald Trump because it is Donald Trump, and Donald Trump is calling a tabloid saying, Women really love Donald Trump, and I've seen him with the women, and the women are so attracted to him, and Madonna's attracted to him, and this one's attracted to him, and that one's attracted to him, and you should really write a story about it. And so during the 2016 campaign, some media outlet got a hold of it and ran it, and Trump was like, that's not me. We hear your voice. It is on the audio recording. This isn't hard. It's not me. Fake news. He's such a brazen liar that he even does lies like that. When he's stone cold caught dead. That's not me. Jesus Christ, Dave Rubin. Up your propaganda skills, dog. This is the worst shit I've ever seen in my life. You're so not talented at this. Jesus, man. It's just... He's got not The guy believes in nothing. He believes in nothing. He found his lane. He cashed in. Now he's coasting. And he falls apart as he's coasting. He's holding the thing together with bubble gum and duct tape because he's just terrible at this job. Okay. Fox News um, decided to create another democratic straw man that I want to show you guys because this is the stuff that runs on this network 24-7 and is rarely, if ever, rebutted. So we're going to do exactly that. Well, I think to your point, one of the biggest differences, and we were talking about this during the break, is Republicans see America first, and they don't want big government. Democrats like more of the global image. That's why they want open borders. Anyone can be welcome. Anyone is allowed to be an American. And uh, we don't care how you get here. Just come. Which they both demonstrate as an idea, uh, and then yeah. in actuality, doesn't work so well. Really? I don't even think that sounds great as an idea. That doesn't sound great as an idea. And by the way, nobody is proposing it. They just make stuff up. How long we've been hearing for so long from right-wing commentators, the left is pushing open borders. You go check. Go look at every single bill that's been proposed in the House. There's not a single Democrat who's proposed open borders. That's just not true. That's totally made up. It's just completely made up. We've seen this so many times. It's like when um, McCarthy went on the floor of the House and he was like, Democrats are wasting their time banning Dr. Seuss. Not a single Democratic politician proposed a single thing about banning Dr. Seuss. The thing he's referring to is Dr. Seuss, the company, was like, we're not sure on these few books, so we're going to pull these few books. And he reframes that as Democrats are wasting time banning Dr. Seuss. No Democratic politician had done anything at all about Dr. Seuss. They just lie. That's all. This is a lie. 
They want anybody to come here at any time for any reason, and that's it. Nobody ever said that. Nobody ever said that. And then, okay, um, the other part that annoys me is, he's, is she says, Republicans want America first. Democrats want a global image and, like, globalism. So everybody. Okay, uh, Republicans don't want America first because if you actually wanted America first, you would have free college for Americans and free health care for Americans. And you would do an infrastructure deal to make us have a phenomenal infrastructure. And you'd have higher wages here in America for Americans. You don't want America first. You want corporate donors first. That's what you want first. Now, unfortunately, Democrats also want corporate donors first, the elected Democrats, and that's a damn shame. But don't twist it like, oh, Democrats are for globalism, Republicans are for America first. Not remotely true. And unfortunately, Republicans and Democrats are very neoconservative, and they're generally pro-imperialism to varying degrees. So really, the entire political establishment is globalist in the sense that they want to control the globe. They want to have 800 military bases. They want to invade and bomb a number of places. You know, they want to be the international bully. I think it's fair to describe that as a form of globalism. It depends on the definitions, and you could take issue with that, blah, 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 whatever. Point is, Republicans aren't America first, and Democrats aren't global, globalism first. They just make shit up, man. I can't. And again, this is what pe- people are fed this garbage 24 hours a day. And then you wonder why a certain segment of the population is completely brainwashed. You know, the, the p- power of propaganda is immense. And there are definitely deleterious effects to having this stuff pumped out there 24-7. And it's a shame. Like, I want them at least try better with your propaganda. I'll say the same thing I said in the Rubin segment. Try more with your propaganda. At least have some grain of truth in it or something that seems somewhat plausible. Instead, it's this all day long. Okay. Squeeze in two more here for everybody. So Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis signed a controversial anti-riot bill into law. Anti-riot bill. Now, let me give you some more information about this bill. The new law grants civil legal immunity to people who drive through protesters blocking a road. Wow. The bill also creates a broad category for misdemeanor arrests during protests and anyone charged under that provision will be denied bail until their first court appearance. And DeSantis admitted, hey, I want to sign this to prevent people from protesting, to prevent people from rejoining protests that are going on. So think about this. You're at a protest. There could be one person in a group of hundreds that does something violent. Now you could be arrested and not released until your first court appearance. You could be in a protest. You could be perfectly peaceful every step of the way. And if one person out of hundreds does something violent, whatever it might be, throw a rock, anything, they can arrest you and lock you up. And it might be for days, depending on what day the protest is. They're granting immunity for people to drive through crowds. So if protesters happen to be blocking a road, which is a tactic you could agree or disagree with, by the way. I don't think it's crazy to say you're against that, of course. But if protesters do that, they're saying, hey, you get run over, you get run over. And so somebody could do it actively and basically commit murder, and they're saying, no, the law allows that. Oh, my God. 
listen, what does that remind you of? It reminds you of, what was her name? Heather Heyer, I think her name was, when she was run over by a white supremacist. It was a car attack. It was a terrorist attack is what it was because it was ideologically motivated. They're basically legalizing that in Florida. What are you doing, Ron DeSantis? And listen, the most important point here is this. They are anti-free speech. That's what, this is what an actual crackdown on freedom of speech means. I know the right has pretended to care about this issue now for the past few years, but every time they bring it up, it happens to be involving some private business, which is, legally speaking, not a free speech issue. Now, I still think it's the principle of free speech, so I usually agree that you, sh- you know, people should generally be allowed to say what they want. There shouldn't be consequences. You shouldn't lose your job or anything like that, right? But here we have an issue where it is actually the First Amendment and free speech and freedom to protest. And the government is violating your First Amendment rights. And you're not going to hear a goddamn word from any of the conservative commentators about this. None of them. None of them. Nobody on Fox News, not Dave Rubin, not Stephen Crowder, not Ben Shapiro, none of them. Even though if this goes to court, this will be struck down. This, this is without a doubt against the First Amendment. So, I mean, this is classic deep hypocrisy because the same people on the right who hyperventilate over, you know, the left being anti-free speech, they didn't say a goddamn word when there were anti-BDS laws popping up all around this country, which said, if you say you want to boycott Israel, you can't get any government money. That's the government cracking down on your freedom of speech. There's anti-protest laws that popped up elsewhere. This is the most extreme anti-protest law I've ever seen. This is just against the First Amendment. He's banning protests. He's banning the First Amendment. If you get locked up and might not be let out for days simply for showing up to a protest, even if you're not violent, that's taking away your First Amendment rights. And again, they're not going to say anything about it. So remember that. They use this issue as a partisan bludgeon. Whereas there are people who actually care about this issue, and if you do actually care about this issue, this should be number one on your list of free speech issues that needs to be addressed. This is totally unacceptable. And this guy, I'll use their own lingo. This guy is a snowflake. He's a snowflake and he's triggered. And so he's going to ban people he disagrees with from talking and protesting and expressing their feelings. So this is authoritarianism 101. That's what this is. Okay. Final story of the day, y'all. Final story of the day. Here we go. So I want to show you guys um, some amazing numbers here. I really think this proves just how well the COVID vaccines are working. So this is from The Hill. Take a look at this. Roughly 6,000 COVID-19 infections have been reported in fully vaccinated Americans U.S. Centers for Disease Control Prevention Director Rochelle Walensky said Monday, current CDC statistics show that as of Sunday, more than 131 million Americans have received at least one dose of a vaccine, and more than 84 million have been fully vaccinated. The latter makes up 25.4% of the population overall. The 6,000 cases referenced by Walensky, however, represents 0.007% of the 84 million who are fully inoculated. So, if you get the COVID vaccine, you have less than a 1% chance of getting COVID. Now, I got to go a step further because there's been a lot of misinformation or just flat misleading stuff in the media about these vaccines. The number of people 
who have been hospitalized or died after taking the COVID vaccine is zero. Zero. Now, I, I mean, I guess you could argue, hey, maybe they missed a handful of cases or whatever. So maybe there's been a few people hospitalized in very rare circumstances. But based on all the data we have to this point, nobody's ever died from COVID after taking the COVID vaccine. Now, you might say, well, hold on, but I thought it eliminates even getting COVID. Well, in one, less than 1% of the time, it doesn't. You could still get COVID if you have the vaccine. Um, but again, it's not going to be a strong case, and you're not going to die. So, you know, we discussed this in previous segments, but in the clinical trials, they said it's 94 to 95%, 90 to 95% effective, the Moderna and the Pfizer, and they said the Johnson & Johnson is 66% effective. Um, but what they don't tell you is that all of them were effective against hospitalization and death. Every single one of them was completely effective against that. And uh, the people who got COVID in the trials, they just showed minor symptoms. And so they still count as having had COVID after having the vaccine, but again, it's more mild cases. So, and I think that there, there are reports now that they're gonna bring back the um, Johnson & Johnson vaccine. They're gonna unfreeze it, the CDC and the FDA. And the reason is, there's been six people who've had a rare blood clot issue, all women age 18 to 48, and there's been nearly 7 million shots that were given. So it's one in a million we're talking about here. Just to put that in perspective, one in 10,000 women who are on birth control have a blood clot issue. One in 10,000, and that's perfectly legal and allowed. One in a million, and they freeze it for a little bit. Now, you can agree or disagree with the, you know, them freezing it, but it's definitely, it definitely should be allowed, for sure. And it'll definitely get us to end this pandemic sooner if we have those Johnson & Johnson shots. And I got it. You could say I'm biased because I got it, but obviously I didn't have any issues. And, you know, now I'm actually officially fully vaccinated now because it was two days ago that I crossed the two-week mark, which is when the government considers you fully vaccinated. So anyway, there you go. Listen, there's really – don't – anybody who's trying to downplay the efficacy of this, I'm sorry, but I have to say it. They're just anti-science. It's just anti-science. The pro-science position on this is, oh, I see the numbers. We do the math. It works. It works. So I'm here to give you the numbers. I'm here to give you the facts. And, you know, some people might not like it. I despise Big Pharma with a burning passion. I call them out on this show all the time. They're incredibly corrupt. They buy politicians. They get their way. But that doesn't mean antibiotics don't work. And it also doesn't mean that vaccines don't work. They definitely work. And that's the case with this one. So these are, these are very promising numbers, man. Only 6,000 cases out of 84 million people who were vaccinated. And those cases were relatively mild. Less than 1% get COVID. Speaks for itself. Okay. All right, guys. Out of time, y'all. Out of show. Love y'all very much. I'll talk to you soon. We got Richard Wolf on Crystal Kyle and Friends this week. I'm out. Peace.